This feature was part of the Overdrive radio and podcast program. For more stories, go to drivenmedia.com.au. America is proud of its big sporting events, its traditional sports like the US Opens in golf and tennis, but also their unique approach to, say, football in the Super Bowl. Now, in motor racing, it's the Indianapolis 500 on a banked circuit, a style of competition that is really at the heart of their racing. But it's not just American good old boys who have been inspired by this event. Now, John Smales, journalist and author on motor racing in Australia, has written a book on the Indy 500 from the perspective of the Australian and New Zealanders who have ventured there. And Antipodeans have made an impact, including from the very beginning. John's book is titled Speed Kings, Australia and New Zealand's Quest to Win the World's Greatest Motor Race. It's a really good read. Hey, John, I love your approach. Oh, thank you very much indeed, David. I have to say it was an absolute joy to write it as well. It exposed me to a lot of things I hadn't known before. You've obviously gone into the detail there and the stories behind the the race results and that. Let's go back to the very start of it. What what year was the, the idea conceived and who got it going? It was conceived way back in 1911 by Carl G. Fisher, who was kind of a... Uh, an early Elon Musk. Carl was a visionary. Uh, the motor industry had only just begun in the world, and Carl was keen to see it uh, progress in uh, in America, so much so that he thought Indianapolis was going to be the epicentre of automotive manufacture, even though Detroit was 200, 300 kilometres up the road. And so he set out to build not a motor racing track, but a test track, the first test track ever built in the United States, and only one of two ever built in the world at that stage, so that the American motor manufacturers could actually discover what their cars could do in a controlled environment. It quickly morphed, however, into becoming uh, the world's, I have to say, world's greatest motor race, at least in terms of super speedway uh, activities. The thing was two miles long, and these days a super speedway is defined as being two miles long, and being able to sustain a speed of more than 200 miles an hour, David. Now, back in those days, that wasn't even on the radar. They were struggling to do 70 miles an hour. The early years of motorcars saw a lot of resistance, the Red Flag Act in the UK, and I think there were some pretty draconian rules in the States. But was Indianapolis this realisation that the, but the horseless carriage could be a fascination with speed. And did that really involve into the racing? Was it that embracing of it, of this liberation of speed? Very much so. Speed sells. I mean, it does even today. But let's say that it does in a, in a different way today. But there's still a degree of people out there who think that uh, that outright performance is probably as important to them in the purchase decision as is uh, ecology hmm. or, or fuel saving. But back in those days, Win on Sunday, sell on Monday was the genesis of the motor industry's promotional activities and Carl was right in the centre of it. Look, he was such a visionary that he built roads so that there would be a means by which people could drive their cars. There were only 800 kilometres of roads in the United States at the time he built the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. He decided to build a, a suburb, actually a city around the Motor Speedway which in his vision would be the first city in America that would be designated as being free of horses. 
What did he call it? He called it Speedway, strangely. <laughs> and yeah. it, it's still there today. Uh, and I have to say, when I drive through it, I see very few horses. <laughs> so he was probably right on the money. Carl went on to develop Miami Beach, for goodness sake. He made the dredge the national emblem of Florida. Uh, and that's not my quote. That's from, uh, from a, an American humorist, Will Rogers, who said those words about, about Carl G. Fisher. And then Carl, having done all that, and having paved his amazing speedway with 3.2 million Indiana-made bricks, he went on to uh, be made pretty much destitute in the uh, financial crash of 29 mm. and died only 10 years after that at a very young age. But he left a legacy, and the legacy is the world's greatest speedway. You mentioned 3.2 million bricks, now, of course, known as the Brickyard, but it didn't start out. The early days, the very early days, it wasn't bricks, was it? He built it out of crushed earth to begin with, but it just wasn't up to any sort of sustained speed, Mm. and it was killing people as well. This was in the days before the 500-mile race came into existence. There were two years in which they ran motorcycle races and car races there, and it was a killing field. So they needed to do something. They looked at various engineering approaches to what they could pave the place with. Concrete wasn't going to work because of extremes of temperature. And finally, the Warbash Brick Company just up the road said, hey, what about us? And they turned up with you know, literally rail car loads of bricks and laid them in less than uh, four months. So from start to finish, they laid 3.2 million bricks in a very, very distinct engineering fashion of rise and fall of the brick and how the car would run over it. And they did all that in less than four months. It was an engineering effort that you just couldn't imagine occurring today. It's a lovely example of that Americana of if you're going to do something, do it big, do it quick and do it well. Pretty much so. And and they certainly did that. Even the designation Indianapolis 500 was something that that Carl and his uh, colleagues came to terms with one night. They did so because they figured they could run a 24-hour race, but who would turn up to watch it, they thought, because you know, that takes a lot of commitment from a spectator. It also takes a lot of commitment from a manufacturer to be able to build a car that could do 24 hours nonstop back then. So they, they worked out that 500 miles in about six hours, six and a half hours is what they thought at the time, would be about the attention span of the spectators and about the ability of the cars. So they determined that. They they thought, well, if it doesn't work, we can always do something again next year, something different next year. But as it turned out from year one, it was a runaway success. And so the Indianapolis 500 has become the longest serving single motor race in the world. And I think that's what makes it such a great race. It has such a a long history. The 3.2 million bricks, putting the last one in, must have been a great exercise. Was it a chance for publicity? Very much so. They they gave the mayor of of Indianapolis the opportunity to lay the golden brick. So the story, I mean, never let the facts get in the way of a good story. Uh, It wasn't made of gold at all. It was made of bronze. And in fact, it was a melted down carburetor because one of the owners of the Speedway, there were four four partners in it, owned a carburetor company. And they simply took the material from which he made uh, his carbs and turned that into, uh, he turned that into the golden brick. I don't know if it still exists, to be absolutely honest. I've 
I've never really looked into it. Some 50 years after the Indianapolis Motor Speedway was built, they paved over all but one yard of the bricks. And so even today, the competitors drive over what's called the yard of bricks right at the start-finish line. But I'm pretty certain that the golden brick isn't there. And I wonder what's happened to it. I must look into that. Meantime, the yard of bricks is about as important in motor racing as the Blarney Stone is in Irish history. <laughs> you can't go to Indianapolis without getting down on your hands and knees and kissing the brick. John, are you saying that the promotion of it had some exaggeration, some overstatement, some hyperbole? David, heaven, heaven forbid. Gee, these guys knew what they were doing. You're leading, I know, into the first Australian to ever race there. A guy called Rupert Jeffkins, who was born at Maitland in New South Wales in 1881 and who finally found his way to being an entrant in the very first Indianapolis 500 uh, in 1911. Now, let me tell you, Rupert invented hyperbole. <laughs> he had speed. I've done a lot of research on Rupert. In fact, while he's been a bit of an enigma in Australian motor racing, I finally set out to see if I could nail him. And I can't say that I've actually done it completely because he's quicksilver, but I've got a lot of him in the book. This is a guy who relied on the fact that news travelled quite slowly in the, in the early 1900s. And so he made outrageous claims about his successes in American and European motor racing, for that matter. I found that he claimed to have come 10th in the Indianapolis 500, claimed to have come 8th in the Indianapolis 500, the first one. Official records show that he may have scraped in a 17th, but as a relief driver. <laughs> but because Carl G. Fisher expunged the records of the very first race, because there was too much controversy around who did what over on what lap, there's no record of the fact that, that our man Rupert actually even competed uh, in the first Indianapolis. I've got photographs of him in trial, so I know that he turned up and, and drove a car. But whether he actually got to drive in the actual race itself, is one of the great mysteries. Don't get me wrong, my book is not full of maybes and possibles. No. It's full of as many facts as I could gather. And the big fact I've got is that Rupert next year, the following year, 1912, rode alongside the great Ralph De Palma in the Mercedes, and they came within one lap of victory in his giant Mercedes until the thing finally blew all of its oil and most of its inside mechanicals out on the bricks with one lap to go. And there's a magic photograph of Rupert up the back of the car pushing it manfully towards the finish line with Ralph walking alongside one finger on the steering wheel, kind of steering it towards the finish and maybe offering just a little bit of motive power to get it there. But Rupert certainly was the engine in that last 400 metres towards the finish line. And they came 11th, but were disqualified because the rule said they had to finish under motive. Their own. And they didn't do that. Yeah. But that's Rupert, who I think one day will be regarded as being the pioneer of Australian motor racing as our first export to the, the world markets. You said he rode in the car. He went as the mechanic. What was the mechanic's role? They called them mechanicians. Now, why, I don't know, and I can't find it in any dictionary, but that's what they were called. And the mechanic's role was quite large, actually. For a start, 
they were the fuel pump, so they had this massive pump effectively between their legs which, with which they had to pump fuel from the back to the, to the engine. Then they had an oil pump as well, which was even more important than the fuel in one respect because these things used about a litre every 10 laps. So keeping the, uh, the oil up to the car was pretty important. Then they were the eyes of the car because in 1911, before 1911, the rear vision mirror hadn't been invented. So they, the mechanicians, had to look forward after to each side to let the driver know what was happening. And then finally, because even the bricks were so punishing on the driver that there was massive vibration going through the driver's arms to the degree that the mechanicians needed to actually reach across and become, if you will, a very early power steering to assist the uh, the driver to steer the car. Now, we spoke for a moment, a moment about uh, the rear vision mirror. In fact, the Indianapolis 500 in 1911 was won by a single-seat racing car uh, driven by a guy called Ray Haroon. It was called a Marmon Wasp. And Ray actually uh, placed the first ever rear vision mirror on that car to enable him to get away with driving solo rather than having the weight of a mechanician alongside him. What he didn't tell the organisers was, and they incidentally reluctantly agreed to let him do it, what he didn't tell them was that it was vibrating so much he couldn't see anything anyway. <laughs> what sort of power were we talking about there? You, you said it was a, you know, the first one was a big car. I presume that means particularly engine-wise. What sort of power would they put out? They were allowed up to, uh, up to 9.7 litres. So there, there was, in fact, a, uh, there, there were rules by which they raced. Mm. So 9.7 litres was the most they were allowed. And they were putting out about 200 horsepower, about 150 kilowatts. So it was a fair amount of horsepower to be having in the day. But it was it was going to the back wheels through all sorts of uh, devices, not the least of which was chain drive back in the day. So there was a lot of power lost before the uh, what what power they had got to the uh, got to the ground. You were saying the first one about seventy miles an hour, one hundred and fifteen kilometres an hour for an average lap. That's not mucking around. At the time, it was by no means mucking around. It was uh, it was pretty good. The first race was won in about six and a half hours, and. Uh, when you look at the kind of averages that they were doing up around the 80 kilometres an hour on, on track, 80 miles an hour, I'm sorry, on track, that was that was quite exceptional, actually, for its time. And it came down to, the at its time, again, the unique layout of the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, two very long straights, two quite shorter straights that they call short shoots, and four corners. Now, people think it's a big, bold circuit. It's really not. The camber is only nine degrees. So, in fact, it comes down to being not much more of a bowl than many of the more cambered corners on motor racing tracks around the world. And that takes a, a degree of bravery, David, mm. to actually pitch into turn one especially. And these days you're approaching turn one at approaching 400 kilometres an hour, and it's, it, it presents itself as a 90-degree left-hander to the degree that some of the later drivers say that their brain just simply won't let them keep their foot flat to the floor. And, and David, sorry, Jeffrey Brabham, in fact, told me, because Jeff you know, followed his dad there many years later, Jeffrey told me that his way through was to plant his right foot on top of his left foot to, to keep the left foot flat. Sorry, put the other way around. Yeah. So he actually had to put both, both feet on the accelerator 
simply to persuade the one that was attached to the metal to stay flat. It went through a time after Rupert and his influence. I think the indie, you know, having two world wars and, and a huge depression, while America, perhaps the depression really hit them very hard, but the wars it hit them hard, but maybe not as bad as other countries. It was about a 50 period, wasn't there, where international participation wasn't as strong? Yeah, the Americans really... Uh really owned Indianapolis, although it's a, it's, a, it's a bit of a misnomer in as much as some 30 Europeans, Europeans and, and Australians, I have to say, have, uh, have won the Indianapolis uh, 500. So, but it's still regarded very much as being as American as, the, uh, as their football. Super Bowl, yeah. As their Super Bowl, yeah. It was very large engine, big brassy sort of approach, yet one of our own, one of our national treasures and his mate added considerable finesse to the design of the cars. Tell us about the Jack and Ron partnership. In 1961, Jack Brabham was invited to race at the Indianapolis 500. He was invited to race by a bloke called Roger Ward, who had just won the Indianapolis 500. And like Jack, he was a speedway driver. And Jack and uh, and Roger got on famously. So Jack took the Cooper Climax, owned by the Cooper family of Great Britain, to Indianapolis. And in that first year, he came ninth. Now, he could have been a podium finisher, except he uh, didn't quite understand, or rather his tyre manufacturer didn't quite understand how the, his tyres should work at Indianapolis. And so they had more tyre changes than they had planned for which meant that they also got their fuel stops out of sequence, and so Jack salvaged a ninth. But blokes like Roger Ward watched this spindly little Cooper Climax have a run against their big roadsters, their big front-engine, massive cars with huge wheels. The wheels were so big they towered above the bodywork so much that people say, said you could actually drive them upside down. <laughs> <laughs> but Roger and the others watched Jack, and they thought, you know, that's what's going to win in the future. And within three years, every Indianapolis competitor was running a Jack Brabham type uh, engine small car. And Jim Clark, uh, the world champion, won it in a small car for the first time in 1965 in, in the Lotus. And therefore, you could say that Jack Brabham changed the first Indianapolis. Now, you mentioned Ron Toronac. By 1964, Jack had left Cooper Climax or Coopers, and had started uh, Brabham with Ron Toronac, the great Australian designer who uh, unfortunately died earlier this year, but still mm. a great innings at 95 years of age. And uh, Ron built Jack's cars to go back and contest Indianapolis again. Jack never, never, never really fired at India after that first night, uh, but his cars did. His car was regarded so well that it was copied by an American designer called Braun. And in 1969, a Jack Bratham, Ron Toronac basic design modified by the Americans won Indianapolis in the hands of Mario Andretti. How about that? You have a lovely story about Ron. You met him not long before his passing, but he was even thinking about an engineering solution to a transport problem as well. <laughs> Thank you, David. I, I met Ron at his Budroom Nursing Home, beautiful place 
marvel of technology. They really look after the guys there well. But Ron had only just become a a resident, and part of the arrangement for uh, for becoming a resident was that you had to use a walking frame. Ron supposed that that way they could be blamed if you happened to fall over because at least they'd given you the equipment. The problem was that his walking frame, according to this great Australian motor racing engineer, inherently unstable and inefficient. So at 95 years of age, using the computer-aided design on his computer in his room, he'd set out to redesign the fulcrum by which his walking would better work because they had a, a, a walking area around this large garden at Budrum. And while he was the lap record holder at 95, he figured he could go quicker by, by, by a significant margin. And he was in the process of redesigning his walking frame when unfortunately he fell off the planet. But nonetheless, that was, that was Torenek all over. He was just in so soft. Lovely fella. You mentioned Jim Clark. Jim Clark was uh, meticulous in that. Now, there's a lot of people who love the razzmatazz of the Indy 500, but such touch events, they, they need people with a passion to technical detail. Now, one person who watched Indy, learnt a lot from it, then came, went to Australia and won the Touring Car Championship four times, Bathurst four times. He was captivated by the methodical excellence that was needed to win Indy. He worked in the pits on one of Jim Clark's uh, events. Who was it and what was his role? His name is Alan George Moffat. He is four times winner of the Bathurst 1000. He's four times Australian touring car champion and he is our own living legend even though he was born in Canada. In fact he was nationalised here in Australia with his referee being his great friend Peter Brock. So Alan Moffat is very much an Australian. Back then he however was a Canadian and he'd set his mind to going motor racing no matter what. And in Alan's own way, determined way, he reckoned that he had to get alongside Team Lotus, who were running a touring car team in America at the time. And he turned up and offered to work as a gopher, and that's exactly what he did. He was taken on by Team Lotus for no money whatsoever, and he had to find his own way to the events. Uh, but he got to wash the cars and get alongside them. In 1964, they sold him one of their Lotus Cortinas. He brought it back to Australia and ran in the initial Sandown six-hour race and uh, uh, won his class in that car and was going back to America to do some racing over there. There was no suggestion necessarily he was going to stay in Australia. Uh, but uh, he went back to America to see what he, fortune might do for him over there and called in to Indianapolis to again get alongside Team Lotus. And they offered him a job uh, as a gopher again. And he was delighted to take it. In fact, this is one of the great, uh, yeah, one of, one of the great uh, successes of Alan's life. He, he swears by a photograph taken of he and Jim Clark and Colin Chapman after Clark won the race that year. But Alan's job that weekend, that Jim Clark won the Indianapolis 500, was to be the man who held out a long stick carrying a cup of water that he would give to Jim Clark on his two pit stops during the 500-mile race. That's what Alan did. But he kept his eyes open and his mouth shut, which is how Alan speaks. Uh, and uh, he learnt so much that weekend. That, if I can, mm. that weekend, uh, 
Team Lotus won not only because of the brilliance of their motor car, but because the Ford Motor Company employed the first really professional pit crew ever to work on Indianapolis motor racing. A, a, a bunch of good old boys from from the southern states called the Wood Brothers, and they're famous over there for their NASCAR activity, but they were brought in to work on uh, Jim Clark's car to actually fettle it through its two, two pit stops. Give you an idea, that year, A.J. Foyt took 41 seconds to do his pit stop. Jim Clark took 19 to do his first pit stop. So Clark picked up like 22 seconds in that pit stop alone, thanks to the almost balletic uh, uh, work of the Wood Brothers. And Moffat just stood there in awe and watched this happen. Uh, and when he came back to Australia, he determined that apart from racing motor cars, he would also have the best pit crew in the world, and that's something he always set out to do. It's interesting, isn't it, that the original you know, big engine, bold and brassy sort of approach, yet it is in every detail that you've got to aim to be the best. Now, it said, how did uh, Moffat feel about Clark? Did he hero worship him, or what was his, what was his view of Clark, who was, of course, brilliant in his own right? You may you may know that I, I had the uh, uh, the privilege of writing Alan's autobiography three mm. years ago, and uh, sat with him for uh, for a long long time. And I have to say that was one of the great delights of my life as well. Alan told me he never had heroes. He never had people that that he idolised. He simply had people that he would benchmark. And as far as he was concerned. Clark was the gold standard of that benchmarking, a man who absolutely knew what he wanted to achieve, but also had the ability to bring around him all of those people who could make it happen for him. So apart from his own natural ability, he recognised that he needed specialists in so many areas, and Jim used his ability to pull those people together. And Alan, to a very large degree, uh, did the same thing with his career, perhaps a little more controversial. <laughs> because there are a few ups and downs in Ellen's crew, but nonetheless, the basic principles still apply. It's an epitome of the man, really, isn't it, that he does pursue things. Brock was the guy to jump in a car and do the first lap almost flat out. Moffat was, as I think you've written about and, and commented on, the person who ground his way through the detail to get on top. Yeah, and that kind of belies the real man, I have to say, as well. I think Moffat is one of the most talented touring car drivers that we'll ever know. Uh, and as was Peter Brock, naturally talented. I think Moffat had as much natural talent as Brock. The difference between the two of them was that Alan was just absolutely conscientious with his preparation, whereas Peter could kind of drive around the problem. I think Alan could probably have driven around the problem as well, but chose not to. Mm. He chose to attack this as if he were an engineer, which in his early days he was not a qualified engineer, but he was employed by the Ford Motor Company to be one of their test drivers uh, at their uh, at their set in Dearborn, right next to the factory. So he would spend hours, days, working with the engineers to better tune the Ford road cars and their competition cars as well. And it was that early training that still led Alan to 
even in the latter stages of your career, want to do the miles before the race over and over and over again. And people used to uh, misinterpret that as a bloke who had to work hard to get a result. He worked hard because he wanted to get the result, but he could have been plugged into the car and done a pretty good job anyway. He wasn't prepared to rush at it. Is that a summation, that he was prepared to progress to it with the end goal in mind, without being caught up as the the hype of the moment? Pretty much so. Alan uh, Alan, uh, very much kept to himself. And, And so you were never quite certain whether it was shyness whether it was yeah. uh, dedication uh, or whether it was that the computer inside his mind was just simply working through the permutations. Alan had two names, uh, uh, well, names by which people called him. There was Alan Moffat, who was the outgoing promotionally-minded motor racing driver who, on his day, you know, was the, the best raconteur around. He was sensational. But then there was... Uh, uh, another personality that people called Arthur, which only coincidentally was the name of his dad, who was a, a, a bit of a hard, hard core person as well. But uh, you'd walk into Alan's pit back in the days when he was winning Bathurst, and you would ask of one of the team members, "Who's in the house today? Is it Alan or is it Arthur?" <laughs> and that would determine that would determine how you would approach Alan. There's a, a six degrees of separation and, and getting back to Indianapolis. When I was a young lad, I watched Moffat and saw him with his then wife, Pauline, who I thought looked confident, vital, but also sophisticated. Certainly not your grid girl in a bikini. I thought Moffat was a very fortunate man. Where's Pauline now? Pauline is now in Indianapolis, speaking of six degrees of separation. They split up, unfortunately. I mean, they were the dream team. Together, they were the power couple. For every person that Alan offended with his caustic nature, Pauline would charm too, you know. And together, they just worked the room. They were they were fantastic. But ultimately, they split up, and Pauline took off to the United States, where she started the Indie Fringe. You've heard of the Edinburgh Fringe, the, the, the great... Uh, Comedy festival. Yeah, comedy, comedy and, uh, and artistic festival. Well, Pauline started the Indie Fringe Festival, to, so much so that in nine, sorry, 2012, she was named Indianapolis's Most Powerful Woman of the Year, which is a, an award given each year, so the most influential woman of the year. And it's only now, in the last couple of weeks, in fact, that she's announced her retirement from that and moving on to uh, to other things, which she hasn't specified quite yet what they'll be. But she very much has become uh, the go-to person in the uh, in the theatre area of Indianapolis. And of course, now she's married to uh, Lee Dykstra, who uh, was Alan's boss back in the days of that testing for Carcraft and Ford in America, and ultimately became Alan's engineer. And can I say there was nothing untoward about that at all. Yeah, Alan and, and Pauline did the split, and Lee left it a an appropriate amount of time before he made his move. <laughs> and Pauline wondered why he waited so long. <laughs> but anyway, uh, 
think all's well that ends well, and uh, and certainly from Pauline's perspective, she's a very happy human being. Yeah. I'm very proud of the time she spent with Alan. Now, Bruce McLaren is a car, supercar brand, McLaren, named after Bruce the New Zealander. He deserves a book on his own, but he worked with Denny Holm, who, of course, won the World Championship in Formula One in a Brabham in 67. Seven, yep. Tell me about the crash that Denny had and what the implications of that were when he crashed at Indy. Yeah, Bruce McLaren uh, was uh, a protege of Jack Brabham. Uh, Jack got him to Europe, got him to Cooper's when Jack left to start Brabham. Uh, Bruce became Cooper's number one driver. But again, Bruce moved on to start McLaren uh, motor cars, racing cars, uh, and he was doing pretty well. Uh, he was winning the American Can-Am series, uh, which was a big sports car series over there, which was very, very influential and important. Uh, and he had a dream. He really wanted to uh, uh, to build his Formula One team and uh, maybe to go Indy racing as well. So he built his first Indianapolis car in the year 1970 and decided he'd make it a full Kiwi affair. So he invited Denny Holm to join him and invited Chris Amon, uh, who, as you know, is regarded as being the best driver never to win a World Formula One race, let alone a championship, uh, and he invited the two of them to join him. Bruce wasn't going to drive himself, uh, but he was going to oversee the team. So there's Denny, now installed in the Indy car, and Denny had been there a couple of times before. He'd, he'd driven quite well, in fact, been fourth there, and there he is in Bruce's car, these cars are fueled by methanol, which, as you know, burns invisibly. So when you have a fire, you can't see it. Denny's car caught fire at 180 miles an hour during practice. And the only person who knew it was Denny. So he's rushing around with the car on fire and literally burning to death. He, he slammed on the brakes, pulled to the infield, jumped out, done what's called the methanol dance, which is what you see people do when they're on invisibly on fire and they're, they're rushing around trying to beat out the flames. And and Denny fell to the track and was finally saved by uh, uh, by the uh, by the officials who incidentally first went to the car, not to the driver. Uh, but Denny had burnt both his hands so badly he couldn't drive. This caused Chris Amon, uh, the second driver in the team, to face his demons and to admit that he wasn't coming to terms with the Indianapolis track at all. And he bailed. He said, no, I can't do it, and, and pulled out of the race. Which left Bruce, of course, with uh, two cars and no drivers, which is something he fixed. But the downside to this whole, whole tragic story is that because Denny had his hands totally swathed in bandages, the day after Indianapolis, they flew back to the United Kingdom, and it was Bruce who had to test the next Can-Am car, which was Denny's car, to enable them to be ready for the first Can-Am race in a couple of weeks' time. And at that test session at Goodwood, the car lost its rear wing, its aerodynamic wing, crashed into a Marshall's barrier, and Bruce was killed. Uh, I mean, what a tragic month of May that was uh, for the McLaren team. And it's a, it's a credit to those who followed the... Uh, the uh, uh, Teddy Mayers of this world, who took over McLaren and made it what it is today. You know, it's it's a it's a real tribute 
to the dedication of Bruce McLaren that after 1970, that one weekend, that one tragic fortnight of time, uh, could have shut down the whole show uh, that had kicked on to become the powerhouse it is today. You talked there about he was then had two cars and no drives. To get a drive at Indy was not always about long-term planning, was it? There was there was a lot of deals done in Gasoline Alley, last-minute swaps and opportunities. I think Australian racing driver Kevin Bartlett went through that process. How did that work? Kevin was there in 1970. He was twice Australian gold star champion by then. He was a genius in waiting. He could have been an international star. Uh, he was invited to go to Indianapolis uh, and, in fact, to America to drive Indy cars uh, as one-offs by a, a fairly uh, uh, fairly poor team. And poor by poor, I mean poor in money, which in turn makes you poor in results anyway. Uh, and uh, he ended up uh, driving uh, at Indianapolis that year for that team. But the car was a naturally aspirated, that is, carbureted car, at a time when everyone else was using turbochargers. So it was going nowhere. And Kevin obviously was not going to get up to speed in qualifying enough to get into the top 33 drivers. And they had a thing called bump day, whereas if you did qualify, uh, you could be bumped at the last moment by someone who went quicker. So it was kind of uh, you know a, a, a race to get in the race, so to speak. Anyway, Kevin, Kevin had by that stage been inserted in two cars uh, by uh, by people who could recognise his ability but understood that he didn't have uh, the backing necessary. Uh, but uh, it wasn't going to happen. Then Denny had his crash. And Kevin went to the Methodist Hospital that night and to see Denny, not to ask for any favours or do anything. And uh, uh, Denny said, look, how would you like to drive my McLaren? <laughs> would I what? And Kevin, Kevin went, left the hospital that night, pretty certain that he had a worse drive with McLaren the next day. Uh, but unfortunately, the money again got in the way. There was so much money swirling. People would walk up and down pit lane carrying briefcases full of cash, trying to buy drives in the race. Uh, and even then they had to qualify. Uh, but in Kevin's case, it wasn't, it wasn't his own lack of funds. Uh, it was, it came down to a, uh, a clash of, uh, tyre company sponsors. And the tyre company that was with McLaren, Goodyear, uh, determined that they wanted a much more high-profile driver in the race, like a Revson. And uh, they inserted Revy in the car that should have been Kevin's. Kevin, meantime, had been given a third car to drive by the minor team. Still, it hadn't cost him any money. Uh, but he was sitting on, on in gasoline alley waiting for his chance to go out to uh, determine his place on the grid, which would have been about 33rd, uh, when somebody else went quicker and then the six o'clock uh, uh, curfew came down and Kevin was bumped from the Indianapolis 500 by two one hundredths of a second. Can you believe it? Now, just contemplate, David, what could have happened to Kevin Bartlett had he been in that race. I don't know whether he would have won it. I don't know whether he would have finished it. But his career could have been kick-started. His, his international career could have been kick-started by that one event. Instead, he returned to Australia and, and performed admirably, won the Bathurst 1000. Uh, you know, before then, had become the first man to do 100 miles an hour around Bathurst uh, and has become one of the 
the great success stories of Australian motorsport. But there's just this, this I've always been a Kevin Bartlett fan. And to me, there's just this one feeling that that one day, May Day, oh, sorry, uh, Memorial Day in 1970, could have been the start of a massive national career for Kevin. And it just didn't happen. And it's just one of those many stories that's in book. These sliding door moments that could or couldn't go the other way. It, it's all very easy to see motor racing as like Sylvester Stallone movie. All you do is press the accelerator harder. It's a much more uh, nuanced, complicated, uh, emotional sort of thing. Now, there can often be a great problem in how you blend then together those business management and those with, I guess, a perfectionist passion for technological development. Uh, New Zealanders Graham McRae, which side of the fence did he sit on? <laughs> uh, Cassius is his name, not Graham McRae, Paul Cassius Clay, uh, Muhammad Ali. He was not shy in terms of uh, in terms of self promotion. He believed very strongly in himself. Look, honestly, I think that uh, that the way he he presented himself, I am the greatest, was probably his way of talking himself up as well. You know, to, to actually bolster his, uh, his own feeling of self-belief. McRae, to my mind, was a man, if, if only he'd had a business manager, if only he had someone to tell him, to, to guide him in the ways of the financial world, he could have, he could have been Bruce McLaren. Uh, on, on, on steroids, to be honest. Uh, McRae won three Australian Grand Prix. Uh, he, uh, uh, went to America and won the, uh, uh, the early, uh, Can-Am series when it was for open wheelers. Uh, in a car of his own manufacture and probably his own design. Uh, but, uh, uh, he was, how do I put this? He was his own worst enemy in terms of his human-to-human relationships. He had this incredible ability to talk himself out, to talk other people out of supporting him, uh, just when you'd think he'd, he'd fallen on exactly the sort of support he needed. He'd find a, he'd find a way of it not being right for him, and and he'd, he'd walk away from it or be walked away from it, depending on what occurred. He only ever raced at Indianapolis once, 1973, he raced for the STP team, which was a huge oil additive company in America, uh, and he won Rookie of the Year that year. I mean, go figure, Rookie of the Year is a pretty good accolade to have in the, the world's hardest motor race to win. Uh, and yet, the next year, he wasn't there. Why? Because he'd fallen out with his sponsors, STP. Please, Graham. What are you doing, son? <laughs> and, and you felt for him because, for goodness sake, he was a man who had so much natural ability, so much, so much fire, so much determination. And yet, for whatever reason, he could just never quite pin the deal together and make it stick. And that, unfortunately, was the, uh, uh, the story of Graham McCrone. And it's interesting that, you know, rookie of the year, if you look at Jeff Brabham, uh, Sir Jack's son, he went there, I think, in 81, and his uh, other in the team was uh, Jose uh, Garza. Yeah, yeah. How did the two perform, and who got Rookie of the Year? <laughs> well, it was Garza who got Rookie of the Year. This guy was... Personality means means a, a, a great deal. 
in any sport these days. How you purport yourself, how you how you seem to look, to feel, to act is all part of your persona. Uh, Jeffrey, like his dad, is an engineer. Jeffrey gets on with the job. Jeffrey is, as I've said in the book, steadfast. I'm not putting him down far from it. I have huge respect for Jeff Gravin. But he found himself in a team in 1981 where the uh, his, uh, his teammate was a young Mexican whose dad had been assassinated because he was a banker in Mexico and they tended to do that to bankers those days, in those days. Uh, and he lived in a mansion in, in Mexico and he was so handsome, according to Time magazine, uh, Sports Illustrated magazine, which wrote him up, he was supposed to be so handsome that girls walked into walls when he went by. <laughs> and that's how they talked about him. Now, he was an amazing young bloke but, uh, and a great talent, had a lot of speed. Uh, when he qualified, he qualified some 10 places greater than Jeffrey. Uh, and in the race itself, uh, because he was young and invincible and didn't understand the, uh, the consequences of getting it wrong, uh, he drove right up there with the leaders of the race and uh, was uh, ultimately... Uh, was all, was ultimately uh, uh, put out of the race when he just kissed the wall, just very briefly kissed the wall, but it was enough uh, to put him to put him out of the uh, the event. Uh, Jeff went on to be the highest placed rookie to finish, uh, but they gave the award to the pretty boy, <laughs> and it, it seemed it seemed so so unfair that uh, Jeff Bradham, son of Sir Jack, shouldn't have been awarded the Rookie of the Year based on his actual finishing result, whereas this guy was given the Rookie of the Year based on how he looked and his personality and and also the way he drove because he was a firebrand. Uh, so that that's the difference between the two of them. John, that just adds another nail to, to my coffin uh, that I could never have been there because of skill, uh, technical skill, driving skill, but also my looks would have held me back. David, there are, there are people there are people who say you're up there because of the, of the latter, so don't be quiet. <laughs> Teamwork, it's not just technical skills, but it's about the character. Now, you talked about Jeff Brabham, the son of Sir Jack. There's his grandson, Matthew. Now, he has the skills of a racing driver, but he also had that quiet, taciturn, reserved approach. Enter Crusher. Can you describe Crusher to me? Brett Murray, Crusher, Australia's most outlandish automotive PR man, uh, a man who lives on the Gold Coast because it's his natural environment, uh, a man who in his life has been uh, a, uh, a bouncer in places of uh, nefarious activity, uh, who's, who's been an SB bookmaker, who's been a, uh, a journalist of note, I have to say, and who has fallen in love with motorsport to the degree that he has a passion for it that is, that is emulated by very few people. Uh, Crusher knew Sir Jack because Jack lived on the Gold Coast as well in his latter years and Crusher revered uh, Jack Murray. Called Crusher because he, incidentally, his nickname comes from his time in American football in, in, in Gridiron where he played American football in Australia and uh, I think Crusher probably uh, reflects uh, the way he went about his tackles. 
Anyway, uh, so here's Crusher, and he reveres Jack Brabham, and he promised Jack before Jack died that he'd keep an eye on young Matthew. This is the third generation of Brabhams. And keep in mind, the second generation of Brabhams has been pretty flat. Two of them have won the Le Mans 24-hour race. Jeffrey has, has cleaned up an American sports car racing. Yeah, they are, you know, without doubt, one of Australia's leading, the world's leading automotive uh, motorsport families. So young Matthew is, is doing his best to get ahead. He's tried so hard in America. He's won two of the junior formula, but he just can't crack it for an Indianapolis drive. Crusher had an idea. He thought 2016 is the centenary race of the Indianapolis 500. I will enter the third generation Brabham. And he set out to do it. David, he set out to do it just like that uh, and did it. He hired a car uh, from KK Racing over there. Uh, he turned up as the team manager himself. He put Matthew inside the motor car and had Matthew drive not only the Indianapolis Grand Prix, which is the... the Prelude race on the uh, on the on the on the road circuit, but also had him drive in the uh, in the Indianapolis 500 itself. And in their rookie year, they didn't win rookie of the year, but in their rookie year, Matthew came in 22nd in a team that was run by by a bunch of Australians who were trying to work out how to make all this happen. Now that kind of undersells it a bit because Crusher had quite a deal of experience with American with American teams by that stage, but it was a it was a brilliant effort, an absolutely brilliant effort by both Crusher, Brett Murray, and by, by Matthew Brabham. Mm. And the, the pity of it all is that that was four years ago, and Matthew, this young guy with so much talent, with so much ability, just hasn't been able in the last four years to find another drive. Uh, so he's, ru- he's rushing around in stadium super trucks, which is a bit of a sideshow. I mean, they're very interesting, very exciting, but... They're still a bit of a sideshow. They're not the real deal. Uh, and, and that seems to be his life at the moment. He's only just turned 26. So if you happen to know someone who's got the lazy two or three million dollars, US, uh, to put behind Matthew to get him in an Indy car, I'm sure he'd repay the favour. But it's just a shame to see him languishing. Do you think Crusher in some ways almost goes back to the spirit of Rupert at the beginning of being able to say, well, let's do that. Let's promote this. Let's do what's necessary. To, and Rupert was to bring out his own talent, but Crusher's was to bring out the talent of the person around him. There was that sort of ability to perhaps push the public relations beyond what a lot of people may have thought. It's a lovely analogy. After many months of researching Rupert, I have to say he was a thief, robber, blackguard, and all all around not nice guy. So I'd hate to think that Crusher thought that, that I think that of him as well. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but the, the answer is uh, it, it takes chutzpah, it takes nerve, it takes, uh, an, it takes a, a dedication to not let any road bump get in your way. And in that respect, I think both Rupert and, uh, and Brett Murray uh, share very much the same outlook on life. I think you described Rupert as a love rat. I'm not trying to in any way draw that parallel with Crusher. I've met him, uh, Crusher, on a couple of occasions. It 
but our interaction didn't start out well. I was reporting on the Honda 300 from Surface Paradise, and I wasn't part of the inner circle. I had to do a radio program. I asked the people in the press tent, and they said, I'll come into this little area that's been set aside. It's actually Crusher's death, but he's not going to be back. And so while I was sitting there on his phone doing the interview, he did come back. And the look said that I was really quite out of place. <laughs> <laughs> but I tell you one thing I did love about that. At, at the 1999, the kart race in Surface Paradise, won by Dario Franchitti, Franchitti walked into the press room and saw Crusher and the two of them gave each other the biggest hug you could ever possibly imagine. It was a, an exuberant idea that was more than just spraying champagne, as you would expect. It represented, I think, Crusher's involvement, his passion and his interaction with this world set of kart race drivers. Yeah, and, and people really appreciate that. When they, when they know that you, you've, you've got a heart for it, uh, they, they really appreciate it. Now, Keep in mind, Brett had a good little business going in Australia. He gave it all up and went to the States just simply because he wanted to follow his passion of, of IndyCar racing uh, and then came back afterwards and, uh, and, of course, built a bigger business here. But uh, that time that he spent with uh, the people who are now the heroes of the sport has, uh, has really been a lifelong friendship that's been formed between he and uh, and some of the guys who uh, who these days we revere as being uh, the men who've made the latter day indie, and you know, I, I suspect that he's not the only one. I suspect that that there's an inner sanctum of people uh, who who kind of get it and who who understand uh, what makes these drivers and these teams tick, and and those people aren't along for the ride. They they're along to to be of assistance where they can. And certainly Brett, with his unique ability to uh, uh, to spin a yarn, uh, is one of those people. Scott Dixon, who said to his team owner, you pay me to do the media, I'll race for free. I think that's uh, perhaps some of that. But before we get to him, Ryan Briscoe, born in Beecroft in Sydney, incredibly gifted. Talk a little bit about what is now being seen as grooming a race driver. His big break was a development program for Toyota Formula One, honing a racing driver. What did that development program involve? It, it was very early days for, for what now is the, the typical way that a young man comes up into Formula One or IndyCar, more Formula One really. These days, companies like Red Bull and Renault have junior development programs, which are pretty pretty ruthless in fact. They get young kids in, they, uh, they put them uh, uh, the blowtorch to their belly, and if they don't perform, they simply discard them because uh, there are uh, are more kids in the pipeline. But back in Ryan's day, he was discovered by Toyota uh, while he was racing in a go-kart race in Italy. Uh, and Toyota were looking to grow their own young talent uh, when they were developing their own Formula One team. A guy called Uwe Anderson was the president of uh, Toyota Formula One. And so they took Ryan on as a special project. And do you could say he was the, uh, he was the prototype for all of these young, young developed drivers of the future. They, uh, uh, they schooled him. They taught him, uh, uh, to be multilingual because that's important in terms of PR. Uh, his body was still developing. 
so they put him in exercise programs which were purpose-built to be able to withstand the G-forces and the stresses and strains of, of a formula car. Uh, they then entered him in, in uh, junior development races and he repaid them by winning both of them, in fact. Uh, they would have spent, in my estimation, the bare minimum spend was $2 million on Ryan's career uh, before he got to put his backside into a Formula One car. Uh, and I say bare minimum, it could well have been double that amount. Uh, and he was groomed to become Toyota's Formula One star of the future. But then things changed in the team, as things so often do in Formula One. Uh, and suddenly Anderson was out, the, uh, the president was out. Uh, the man who was Ryan's minder was out. And Ryan was very much on the outer as Toyota looked to employ already na known names and racing stars to take them to Formula One prominence. And that left Ryan out in the, in the cold uh, and paved his way to Indianapolis. But can you imagine having spent well, close on three years and several millions of dollars that you'd simply cast him aside? Given that he had great talent too, it was, I think Toyota entered with the vision that if you started with a clean sheet and with Japanese technology, you could, uh, you know, should be winning fairly soon. That didn't happen. And I, I guess they then became disillusioned and made some corporate decisions based on a new vision of the future. But was it the one who was down on power that they, in one of his races, I'm not sure, he went to, when he went to Indy, did he find that a different environment? Very, very much so, yeah. He was, uh, he transferred to Indianapolis because he was offered an opportunity there. And he suspected that there were a couple of friends within Toyota who'd paved the way for him because the Chip Ganassi team was using Toyota engines at the time. And he found himself a place in the Ganassi Indianapolis team. Uh, but the problem was that their engines, their Toyota engines, were down on power compared to the Toyota engines that the rival Roger Penske team was using. Now, how could that be, you might ask, since they both came out of the same crate, allegedly. Anyway, that's part of the mystery of motorsport. Uh, nonetheless, Ryan was then charged with the responsibility of trying to keep up with the Penske cars with a car that was down on power. And that meant that they had to undertake all sorts of uh, aerodynamic uh, fixes to uh, to try and make the car go as fast as the Penske cars. If you haven't got horsepower, then what you want to do is make the car more slippery. The more slippery you make it, the more dangerous you make it because it doesn't have downforce to keep the wheels planted on the ground. And so Ryan was finding that he was becoming more and more desperate in terms of his driving over the limit of the motor car uh, and putting himself more at risk. In fact, the entire Ganassi team was doing that this year. They went through 28 tubs, that is 28 cars, in one season because of crashes caused by their, uh, their desperate attempt to stay up with the Penske team that year. And of course, that's when Ryan had his big crash at Chicago and, uh, and it was a ball of fire. And uh, Ryan was unbelievably fortunate uh, to uh, to be carried out of the car 
with uh, with his life intact. He was in teams that ultimately, a bit like the Toyota Formula One, they said decided to try and move away. And some people started to try and uh, undermine him. And so there was the comment that he wasn't a team player. I guess that's not true. But in Formula One, if he was called that, how would they have responded? If you're not a team player in Formula One, that means you're just a problem for the for the marketing department. Uh, but it's probably a good idea because the Formula One teams very much play their two drivers against each other. And in that respect, there's not a lot of sharing of technology that, that goes on. Uh, and, you know, as they say, if the first, the first person you've got to beat is your teammate. Now, in Indianapolis, it worked quite differently. Uh, in Indianapolis, while certainly as a driver you wanted to beat your teammate, you're also part of a bigger, bigger uh, operation and you would share and you would, you would share uh, results and technology, and you'd even back off and let your teammate go through to a win if, if that indeed uh, made the, uh, the team more prominent. Now, Ryan did all those things. The, the, the not a team player was a comment that was made by uh, a, uh, a member of the Team Penske operation at the time that Ryan was driving for Team Penske, and I don't know that it was actually founded in fact. I don't know that it was said for a start. Ryan believes it was. But I, but I also don't believe that Ryan was anything other than a very willing uh, member of uh, Team Penske at the time. But he nonetheless didn't have his contract renewed. And it wasn't renewed not because they disliked him, but because there's a thing called... David, this... this in the book that I wrote, I spent a fair bit of time with Team Penske, and I am such a fan of this operation, I can't begin to tell you. They have a thing called the Penske Way, and it's almost a corporate guidebook, corporate guidebook for motor racing. And it involves everything that they do and every way they go about it. And one of, one of the requirements they have is that their driver must, after a certain period of time, have either won the Indy Racing League Championship or won the Indianapolis 500. And regrettably, after five years of trying, Ryan had done neither. Although he had had seven wins and more than 20 podium places, he hadn't met the ultimate criteria of Indy 500 or Indy Championship. And for that reason alone, they decided to cut him loose and uh, and move on with other opportunities. I think it was quite fair, both both sides, actually. Ryan had his opportunity. For whatever reason, it didn't come off, and Penske gave him the opportunity. So I think they could both hold their head head high. I mean, can I say that after you've been a Penske alumni, you are highly regarded. There is no such thing as failure inside Penske. It's only a degree of uh, of how successful you were. There was finally a breakthrough from an Antipodean with Scott Dixon. What year did he win? And do you think that reflected on you know, your whole concept of Australians and New Zealanders competing in this great race? Scott, Scott Dixon is a, a paradox uh, to me. Uh, racing drivers, by their very nature, should be selfish and self-centred, <laughs> arrogant and not most to know, uh, and they should be unbelievably fast. Uh, Scott's uh, unbelievably fast, but he's also the nicest guy you'll ever meet. Which is, which is very, very unusual. Uh, he's been with uh, Chip Ganassi racing for 18 years. He's the longest serving 
uh, team member of any Indianapolis team ever. Uh, and the reason is that the two of them are pretty much polar opposites. Chip's an aggressive, you know, win-at-all-cost man. Scott, on the other hand, is the absolute uh, definition of a late Kiwi. Uh, and yet he has such natural speed and such natural ability to be able to work his way around and through any problem that he, he just works well in that team, such that he's won six Indianapolis championships now, second only to the great AJ Foyt, who's won seven, and he's won his one Indianapolis 500 back in 2008. Scott has, in New Zealand, he's a proud New Zealander, even though he was born in Brisbane, uh, Scott uh, has now been made a companion of the uh, the uh, uh, order, uh, the, the British uh, Empire Order over there, and all that's left for him is a knighthood. Uh, and frankly, I believe that uh, that he'll probably get it sometime very soon. I was amazed. We're talking mainly about the Indianapolis 500, but as you said, he won the champion or has won the championship six times, including this year, I believe. Yeah. It's an amazing thing, but perhaps a sense of sadness in that it's the Indianapolis 500 that has really perhaps given him more publicity in in Australia and that. Do you, do you think that we undersell that type of success, that type of huge success in a top American competition that we should do better in reflecting that history? I, I think you've summed it up very well. Uh, the Formula One race, Formula One World Championship is where we all turn our eyes, and for good reason, because we've got the Mark Webbers, we've got the Danny Ricardos, we've got the young guys upcoming. Uh, in, in New Zealand, we've had Brendan Hartley recently in Formula One. Uh, but uh, uh, there are as many nations represented in the IRL Championship as there are in Formula One. The only difference is that in India, in Indy Racing League, they've tended to race, at least recently, only within the confines of their own borders, whereas uh, Formula One is, in fact, legitimately a world championship racing around the world, and I guess that's the difference. But uh, I think it was all summed up in 2018. Uh, in May 2018, on the one day, Daniel Ricciardo won the Monaco Grand Prix for Formula One, and Will Power, uh, that is Will Power, the Australian driver, uh, won uh, Indianapolis 500. And the Australian media w w was uh, caught uh, in, a, in a quandary. They didn't know whether they should celebrate Will or whether they should celebrate Daniel. Uh, they started out with Daniel because they understood Formula One. But by next day, they ended up with Will because they finally recognised uh, the import of winning the Indianapolis 500, and that kind of trumped the Monaco Grand Prix, although only just. Uh, but it, wasn't it incredible that the two drivers, two Australians, would win probably the two most important races in, in their career paths, both on, both on the same day? Will Powell, you know, I'm, I, I'm an idiot, uh, John. I never really thought about it as Will Power. I, I, I always just read it as Will Power. Uh, but nonetheless, he's got that name. Uh, his brother, I think, is a comedian, and I think he lives off that uh, sort of pun, doesn't he? He, he does. Damien is, uh, is a great stand-up comic. And, I mean, all three Power Boys 
Uh, well, there are four power boys. One's an accountant, but the other three. Are you saying there, John, the other three have a life? <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm not trying to judge anyone. <laughs> There's one in gainful employment, put it this way. But William Power was in 1915 the uh, Australian record holder for motorcycles between Toowoomba over the Great Australian Divide and Brisbane. He set the two-way record in, I think, on a, on a think a two and a half horsepower rudge in 1915. Uh, fast forward 70 years, and his parents, his his Will's parents, named him after his grandfather William. Will's mum would never call him Will for the reason that willpower is just asking too much of the human spirit. So he was always William at home, but. Willpower kind of works in 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 America. You know, it really stands for something. You know, people look at it and go, "Wow, what a cool name!" Yeah, you know, and and they love him even the more for it because he epitomises the name. This guy has for ten years, in my view, been the fastest qualifier in Indianapolis racing. This is a guy who is best kept in a cage, fed on raw meat, and let out only when told which way the circuit goes and what the lap record is. You know, he is an animal. I mean, having said that, he's a very refined racing driver as well, but his determination knows no bounds. And the name willpower, if it ever applied to anyone, it applies to this bloke. I think things like willpower and that was racing not only in the bank circuits, but on more traditional circuits. Now, we've got Scott McLaughlin. He's one Bathurst driving a Mustang, and which is a touring car of sorts, but nonetheless certainly not the refinement and elegance of an open wheeler. He's now going into this kart racing. How hard would it be to adjust to that? Is, is this a huge jump? not only in terms of publicity and so on, but in just the skills needed to cope with the different driving circuits? Scott McLaughlin's been given the most golden opportunity that any Australian racing driver could ever receive. For a start, he's not had to go through any of the junior formula uh, over there in America to qualify to go into uh, the very top end of Indy, Indy car racing. He's been uplifted by Roger Penske, who owned the DGR Penske team in Australia, and for whom Scott won uh, three Australian championships and the Bathurst 1000. And at 27 years of age, he's been given the opportunity to prove himself in IndyCar racing. I spoke a little while ago of the Penske way. Penske aren't putting immense pressure on him. They've said, we'll give you three years to adapt and to win. So they haven't said, come over here and win at your first attempt although I think they probably want a, a Rookie of the Year out of him at least in 2021. Uh, but Scott's been placed in an open-wheeler car that lives on aerodynamics. Uh, and he's come from a sedan car which lives on mechanical grip. The two couldn't be more diametrically opposed in terms of the way you go about driving them. So Scott's had to adapt really quickly to aero uh, performance, which means when he pitches into a corner, you know, he's now relying on the downforce of the motor car to give him grip. Uh, 
And I have to say, David, he's done a sensational job. He only a couple of weeks ago did his Indianapolis rookie test. Everyone who goes to Indianapolis has to do a number of laps at certain speeds to convince the Indianapolis uh, officials that they're capable of the speeds before they're allowed to step up to the next level, then the next level again. And and so over there, and in 40 laps, he progressed from only 330 kilometres an hour <laughs> uh, to uh, averaging more than 350 kilometres an hour uh, over 15 uh, sustained laps. Uh, he has shown that he has an ability to adapt very, very quickly, and he's going to spend this summer our time, this winter their time, uh, really coming to terms with what it's all about before he faces his first race in the in the Indy Racing League, which will be a road circuit, which is more his experience, uh, uh, next uh, next March at St. Petersburg in, uh, in Florida. Uh, ask me, I think he's got, he's the real deal. I think he's got the right stuff. I think he can do it. Yeah. But uh, he's up against guys who've grown up understanding aero grip and that's something he's still going to have to come to terms with in open competition because cars can be so unsettled in competition against each other and honestly, he's not going to have that opportunity to discover what that means until his first race next year. It's a, a huge jump. And so in conclusion, John, the Indianapolis 500, you've said the greatest motor race in the world. It has that longevity of history, but also the richness of history of characters and engineering and and different circumstances luck comes into it as well is that what's made it such a great race in your mind uh, very much so the longevity i think is what it's all about i mean if you ask a, a person in the street uh, what's the the greatest motor race of all time they're probably likely to nominate uh, unassisted nominate indianapolis than even lamar or goodwood or even that panorama i dare say although in australia I'd probably default to Mount Panorama to begin with. Uh, but Indianapolis has become the, the standard by which uh, the man in the street judges motor racing. And, and it deserves that accolade simply because of the speeds that it, uh, it demands, uh, the, the characters that it's, uh, it's given birth to, uh, and uh, the longevity, which I'm sure will go on for as long as you and I are in the business. And I think it deserves a book like you've written, John, uh, which is a wonderful compilation of not just technical facts, or, although they are in there for those that can be astounded by them, the speeds, for example, but also the characters. I love the read, and I really appreciate uh, the fact that you've written the book, and, uh, and of course that it's a lovely opportunity to talk to you now. Thank you very, very much. David, thank you very much indeed for speaking to me and thank you for your support. No problem at all. And that's John Smales, the author of the book Speed Kings, Australian and New Zealand's quest to win the world's greatest motor race.